Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing, usually recorded at the PW offices in New York City, but this week we're all kind of spread out around New York City uh, by you know, calling in remotely. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the Graphic Novels Review Editor of Publishers Weekly, as well as the Editor-in-Chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. Uh, and you can check us out on Twitter at, at PWComicsWorld. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online at Tumblr at PWComicsWorld.tumblr.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to more to, to come on iTunes and on social media, uh, particularly on Facebook. We're at Facebook.com slash PW Comics World. Okay, this week on more to come. Netflix, um, Emerald City Distribution. Uh, my favorite thing is Monsters. A digital update, New York Comic Con, and Big Apple Con news, and comics stuff in PW. So, Netflix. Well, I, you know, comics on TV, I, I think we've been talking about this quite a bit, and there's certainly been, um, we, we have yet to watch it, so we're not going to weigh in on the great <laughs> Iron Fist debate of 2017 right now. Well, um, I don't know that it's really a debate. I've yet to see anyone being like, it's awesome. <laughs> it's, oh, well, uh, actually, I beg to differ on Facebook, uh, which I know you're not on, both Larry Hama and Gary Langwin, who are uh, Asian, uh, mm. one is Asian American, one is Filipino. Uh, both of them enjoyed it very much. So, you know, I, there's a diversity I, of opinion out there. I've seen okay. some isolated um, um, praise, limited praise, but I, but it's pretty much been overwhelmed by um, really rejection <laughs> from what I can see out there. Um, you know, not and 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 not simply just the the white casting. Um, I, I, the stuff I'm seeing is really taking the whole show apart piece by piece. Well, and, it is. And, and they just and don't seem to think it's up to the quality of the previous uh, Well, Marvel. you know, there's a big problem. There's a big danger. You know, Finn Jones has just dug himself a huge hole on social media by trying to defend himself, but the man was unarmed um, in, in a battle of wits or a battle <laughs> yes. of uh, talk, you know, uh, so it's been pretty, you know, I, I, I mean, my heart kind of goes out to the guy. But, um, you know, the real danger sign is the producer of the show is a fella named of Scott Buck. And he is the producer of the last few seasons of Dexter. So I don't know mm. if you guys ever watched. Yes. Hey, Kate. Yeah. yeah, I watched Dexter. And I'm here to tell you that the last few seasons were not stellar. And everyone I, else I knew who watched Dexter were like. Let's put this show out of its misery, please, soon, now. Well, it really went from being one of the first. I mean, it, you know, Dexter started a long time ago, like 10 yeah. years mm -hmm. ago or more. And it really was one of the first very stylish, noir, like, you know, envelope-pushing uh, shows out there with this uh, plot line, of, like, you know, where you sympathize with a mass murderer. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, uh, and it went on for like three or four seasons that were really top-notch. And then all of a sudden, I, I, you know, you said they're not stellar. I mean, it really went from being something that was very stylish to um, it just got really stupid. So, um, you know, Scott Buck is on my on my. Also, it list. had incidental incest, which apparently they didn't <laughs> even seem to think was a big deal. Yeah. I'm afraid I uh, didn't see it, although I heard great things about it. Nor <clears throat> have I seen Iron Fist, though I seem to have been uh, reading a great 
deal about it. Well, I'd like to throw this out there, okay? Uh, just as a warning flag, that Scott Buck is also doing the Inhumans. And this is a danger <laughs> sign. Like, um, you know, this is a family. We know how he feels about incest, so there could be some real danger. I don't know. I mean, I made that up. But, uh, uh, you know, that's a, a red flag. A red flag is flying over the Inhumans yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Well, and there's a lot of red flags. Well, flying. I mean, to be fair, you know, you know the old... Uh, Mean Girls quote about trying to make fetch happen. Yeah, Marvel seems to be doing that with the Inhumans. Right. They mm-hmm. keep not happening. Well, if I may plug my my own site, Comic Speed, I have a, a new writer, uh, Tamar Dar, who is uh, a marketing uh, expert. So he actually took a look at the Inhumans and looked at why they get some of the elements that have perhaps held them back a bit from a marketing and branding standpoint. So let's just say it's an uphill battle for them sometimes. And um, yeah, uh, the Scott Buck does not inspire confidence, especially after this Iron Fist controversy. But we'll talk about it more when we've actually... Yeah, and, and I will say, and this is just my prejudice going in, um, I watch Game of Thrones, and I... Myself, I'm a lesbian. And so I was, like, psyched for the gay plot line. And I was, like, willing to take whatever I could get. And uh-huh. Finn Jones was part of that plot line. And good God, he was the worst actor on the show. <laughs> no, he I don't know if they just underwrote his role or if he was just just not that good. <laughs> be I don't what know. You, be careful what you wish for, huh? Anyway. Yeah, I, well, I, 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 mean, no, I mean, you what? get the plot line no matter what, whether you've got a good sure. actor or a bad actor. Bad actors happen, no, I guess. Sure. Or maybe he just uh, was not a good fit for the role. Maybe he's mm-hmm. great in something I haven't seen, um, but he just does not strike me as a particularly um, compelling lead. Regardless of race, we'll see. Well, just to throw in one other little thing, that yesterday there was an interview with an actor. uh, Well, now I'm forgetting his name. It's it's um, Tan. Anyway, he is. uh, Let's just really dump on Phil Jones. Uh, His name is Louis Tan. His father is a very famous stunt coordinator. He is half. Asian and half American. That makes him Asian American. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has studied martial arts. He can do his own fight scenes. Uh, he actually plays a villain in one episode of Iron Fist. Now I don't know. He and he was in the running to play Iron Fist. He got right up to the oh, very last. He had and he had some videos online, didn't he? Yes. Yes, the guy. Yeah, he was awesome. He's super hot and he fights really well. <laughs> yeah. You know, he... Poor little Finn Jones. I mean, this guy doesn't even have a martial arts background. So. You know, I, I mean... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, let's put it this way. If you have someone who is a mediocre actor and can fight in a show about martial arts, at least he can fight. If you have a mediocre actor and he can't fight, I don't I don't know what your plan is. <laughs> <laughs> what is your plan? Where is the upside? Yeah, well, there you well, go. Well, you know, there's certainly no dearth of, even if we don't watch Iron Fist, and i got to be honest, I have, I've yet to see Luke Cage, yeah. and I never got through Daredevil Season 2, so I've, I've got a lot to catch up on. But, you know, even if you're not interested in that, Netflix is giving us a lot more comic stuff. Apparently, uh, they're doing some anime. They're adapting anime. Yeah, uh, Netflix is, does carry some things that are supposedly Netflix original, but are, in fact, anime that came out through regular channels in Japan and just Netflix is a pipeline through which they're coming to the United States. But they actually have um, 
something original coming down the pipeline um, that they are making themselves. So uh, Kei Sanbei has a mystery manga series called Boku Dake Ga Inai Machi, otherwise known as Erased, about um, a character who gets accidentally time-traveled to different times right before something terrible is going to happen and then has to fix it. And so uh, Netflix bought the rights to make, for a world audience, um, in Japan is where they're filming it, and, you know, it's, it's a Japanese production, um, a live-action version of a race, which they then will put on Netflix in Asia and United States and all over the world. And this is a pretty popular manga, so, you know, this is like a major step on their part as a commitment to... Yeah, I mean, I understand that, I I, I mean, Netflix um, has certainly become like, you know, a mega billion dollar, like, studio. I mean, it's bigger than all the studios right now, and, you know, streaming is where it's at, and they are definitely getting into comics. Um, You know, Korean Netflix has been doing a lot of shows that are based on um, phone comics there, you know, webtoons, that kind of thing. I mean, they they base TV shows on on anything, so even uh, web comics. Yeah, one of those has actually come out in the United States. but its name escapes me, I'm uh, afraid. Well, yes, there and, and there's more talk of, of, of that happening as well. Um, I think we might have alluded to this earlier, but uh, there's in England, they're doing a, a streaming adaptation of Chuck Forsman's The End of the Effing World, uh, which is published by Fantagraphics, and that will also be coming to Netflix. Um, they, they just announced this week that the Russo brothers, who made the Captain America Winter Soldier, uh, Captain America Civil War, and I guess they're making Infinity Crisis or Identity Crisis, whatever the next Avengers movie is. Afterwards, right. they're going to be doing a Quantum and Woody TV show for Valiant. So that's, that's uh, you know, good news for Valiant. Um, uh, Heidi, do you want to yeah. explain to our listeners what Quantum and Woody is? I don't know what Quantum and Woody is. <laughs> well, I just, I only know from... Uh... The item I actually didn't know anything about this, uh, but the item that Kate sent out. That uh, well, you know what it is, Kate. Yes. Yes. Um, so well, Quantum and Woody is an independent sort of humorous superhero series about um, two brothers, one of whom is adopted, and one of whom is black, and one of whom is a Caucasian slacker. <laughs> and they decide to superhero and so it's sort of like superhero comedy family stuff yeah i didn't know about it but now i want to read it <laughs> yeah and well, it was originally I, out in the 90s and now yeah. it's come back cool come back. well it's it's definitely one of those i mean i i have never read quantum and woody but uh, among all the valiant series i know it has this very very uh, dedicated cult following, as do most uh, Valiant series. So, well, I would say that Quantum and Woody and Archer and Armstrong are the two that have the strongest followings that I've actually seen in the wild. So, I would say it's one of their stronger offerings. So, I think it's right. great that it's getting adopted. Yeah, I, I, adapted. I, I would agree with that based on what I know. And certainly, the Russo brothers—they uh, got their start in TV. So. Uh, that's a strong, uh, strong for them. Um, you know, in movies also, I mean, we're definitely seeing a lot of um, kind of, I, I mean, we've been talking about Legion and Riverdale and, you know, comics yes, 3.0 mm-hmm. and TV, but certainly the movies, I mean, I think the success of Logan 
which you guys mm -hmm. haven't seen. I've seen it twice. No, so I haven't come seen on, it, yeah. guys. You, I, you know, it's. <laughs> I saw that's... Skull Island, which incidentally oh. is coming to comics from Legendary. Uh -huh. Yes, that's right. They are. Um, but they're doing well. This uh, the summer uh, actually at, at South by Southwest they showed a trailer for a movie called Atomic Blonde, which is based on a comic book, but it was called The Coldest City. Um, it stars Charisse Theron as a totally kick-ass assassin, and it really was one of the buzz movies at South by Southwest, and it is based on a comic from Oni, written by Anthony Johnston. Um, in England, I noticed they were making a movie based on uh, this graphic novel, Days of Bagnold Summer, which was this humor graphic novel that actually was nominated for the Costa Prize, which is the most prestigious literary prize in mm -hmm. England. So wow. it, it is being made into a movie, and I forget who is directing it, but it's like a, a well-known British comic making his future debut, but it's a really funny book that's about, and wistful also, about a, a heavy metal dork, teenage dork, who has to spend the summer with his mom, who's a librarian, and you know, how they, they get on each other's nerves. But mm -hmm. um, Yeah, and let's see, what else? I mean, well, Wilson is coming, opening. In a, in oh, that's a, right, yeah, very Wilson soon. Is coming. Um, and you know what else is coming that's so below the radar is the movie adaptation of My Friend Dahmer. Yes. Oh, very really? good. Yeah. That, so I there's not like up on my radar, and lots I love that of stuff. Novel. Yes, there's lots and lots and lots of stuff. But, you know, TV, uh, I just keep hearing this, is huge, 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 huge. And uh, there is a lot more comics content being signed up um, for TV for No so shortage you, at all. Yeah. And if you did not like Iron Fist, just wait five minutes. Something else will come along. <laughs> well... One thing that I heard, I mean, I'm just going to stop here before we go too far into Iron Fist, before we actually see it. One thing I heard is that, like, with the comics televising and movie making thing being in full blast, like, you really need to have something different about your thing to be the reason why people want to watch your comic book adaptation. Well, but I think it's also, like, this Marvel Netflix deal was made in the dawn of time, comparatively speaking. You know, this was made, like, four or five, about four years ago, mm -hmm. I guess, mm -hmm. or if not more. And, you know, they signed up all these shows for 13 episodes, and every single one of them, 13 episodes is way too long. They all get super saggy draggy in the middle. And, um, you know, all of the good shows, I mean, Stranger Things was, what, eight episodes, you know? I mean, my favorite shows, like, Better Call Saul and Fargo, they're, like, ten episodes. So. Well, I mean, I will say that Voltron, uh, Legendary Defender, which is a very, very good Netflix show, unsurprisingly, since it's from the people who brought you Avatar The Last Airbender, um, is actually, like, they expanded from like 10 episode order to a 13 episode order. And that's not dragging. But right. on the other hand, these people have a really good sense of pacing right. and they're not basing it on any very highly specific source material. So they can put in whatever they want. They're not like constrained to like the hero origin story arc or anything like that. Right. Well, it's just really been obvious in all the Netflix series that they're just stretching the material they're, and it's very thin, you know? It's very, very thin. And, um, you know, they would be well advised to to think about this moving forward. I mean, we still have the Punisher coming, and there's going to be the Defenders, which teams everyone up. And as someone pointed out, the, for the Defenders now, has four heroes, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, Power Man, excuse me, Luke Cage, yes. and Daredevil. 
and all of them pretty much have powers that are punching things. You know, <laughs> they're all like beat down. It's a beat down deck. Well, give and, the people um, what they want. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that would work fine for like street level crime, which the whole point is that you need a team that in some way will be different than the Avengers. And so, like, okay, like maybe you do have a team of like beat down people. I mean, that that doesn't bother me. Are you um, another version of Thug Life? <laughs> yeah. You know. All right. Well, anyway. well, I think we've covered the TV landscape pretty well here. There's a lot more coming. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And so. All right. So, Emerald City Distro. Now, this right. looks really interesting. Obviously, this is like at the other end of the, as far away from mass distribution as you can get. But it's a useful uh, new startup uh, in a category that, you know, people pretty much sort of assume is taken over by Diamond. Well, I, it is. It is. And, um, uh, you know, people, I, I'm sure I've said this on this, this podcast again, so I'll, I'll just call it Diamond, Heidi's Diamond Apologia. You know, is that people get on Diamond, and Diamond definitely doesn't do everything perfect. But the reason why there's no, why Diamond is a monopoly is because no one would be crazy enough to do this. <laughs> there is no comparable business that delivers thousands and thousands of SKUs on a weekly basis mm-hmm. and a you know timing drop. So anyway, yeah. you know, Diamond really has has evolved into this strange thing. But there yeah. are quite a few publishers who aren't exclusive to diamond yes yes yeah, and well, remember actually, on the diamond, book side i mean diamond has started up a whole other unit you know to do the book side too i mean anyway that's just just a little aside well, diamond grew out of specifically to to, to serve the direct market which did. didn't come yeah. into existence until the 1970s it there did. were many jobbers that distributed magazines and even um even paperback mass market paperbacks to newsstands, that's, you know, being the, the old fart here, that's how I bought my comics. That actually the whole magazine distribution system has always been incredibly wasteful. Yeah. More yeah. than 50% of the product returned. You know, this is returnable. So, you know, like if, if some guy with his newsstand in Brooklyn, uh, NY, BKNY, got his pile of pulps dumped on the sidewalk in the early morning, misty morning by the truck, and it was damaged. He was just like, yeah, what do you want? And he put them up for sale, and the kids would come and say, yeah, mister, it's cut, it's torn. And he'd be like, get away, kid, this ain't a library. Okay? So nowadays, when it... (laughs) This is like a bad movie from the 40s. All of this material was returnable, and retailers invariably... Uh, where they were supposed to tear the covers off and get credit and destroy the material, which they never did. They tore the yeah. covers off and they resold the material vastly discounted because, believe me, that's how I, and I, kid. I grew up in the late 1950s and the early 1960s. That's how I bought my comics. I, I it wasn't until I was probably 12 years old or so that I actually bought brand new comics. I went out. I would get out early on Saturday mornings. And I would go to every mom and pop store in the area because that's how I got my back issues. So you would go and you could get these comics for for five cents, and they were like a quarter at the time. Can you imagine reading these mutilated comics now? I love you know what? Yeah, well, that's what I did. That was my vast majority of my collection for a long time until I got a little older and actually had some of my own spending money. But that's what I did, and that's how you got comics, and that's why it was so incredibly inefficient. Nobody was following any of the rules, and every and and but at one time it was profitable, but really it started as more and more competition, particularly for comics, came out on newsstands. It became wildly unprofitable for comics publishers, uh, yeah. and that's when the direct market made its appearance. It is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the and- direct market's incredibly 
And, Which and is actually now, kind of efficient for itself. And now that we've explained Diamond, uh, <laughs> now let's talk about Emerald City Distro. So, you know, even because, you know, Diamond, like I said, I have a lot of sympathy for what they do, but they definitely have flaws. They definitely could be improved. That's not what I'm trying to say. Diamond is far from perfect. And there's a lot of publishers who aren't uh, exclusive to Diamond, and they feel that they are not, uh, you know, they don't have our a dedicated distributor or a rack jobber. Now there is one, at least one. Uh, you know, Tony Shenton. He yes. does that for a lot of publishers, and he is revered. So I guess what her, her name is Ann Bean. She's out of Seattle. She's a uh, you know comics kid, like done Kickstarters and all that. And so she's starting her own little rack jobbing, local in, from her basement and from the the rear seat of her car. She's gonna drive. You know, call <laughs> you up and say, do you need more copies? of this uh, indie comic. And if they say, yeah, Copra, do you need another copy of Copra? And they say, yes, I do. And she will drive over and she will sell you. Now, now this is just in the Seattle area, I assume. She's starting out in Seattle. But she hopes yeah. to go national? Well, she's Or regional? Or... <laughs> yeah, well, she's phase one. Yeah, you know? and, yeah. Uh, well, I... absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, who knows, maybe it would work like a franchise. Somebody else would yeah. do it out of their basement in a different city. Area. Okay. Fire this week in comics distribution. Okay. Yes. Uh, and also this week in comics bestsellers. Yes. So uh, we're going to segue at that point to uh, something that I have been boring people about for for about seven or eight months. But really, uh, this is really one of the great publishing t stories I think of recent memory. Uh, a little graphic novel called My Favorite Thing Is Monsters. Um, I was fortunate enough to I mean do one of the first interviews uh, with the author M L Ferris. Um, uh, she was a part of the BEA, a graphic novel panel uh, at the at last year's BEA in Chicago, um, and I had her on a podium along with Raina Telgemeier and Box Brown, and we're previewing, and we do this every year, BEA, we preview graphic novels that are coming out in the fall. Her book, My Favorite Thing is the Monsters, which I had knew nothing about, and in fact, put her on the panel because she lived in Chicago and I couldn't get anybody else. There just was no, but a lot of people were not going to Chicago for this year's BEA. Publishers that were, were not bringing artists. And I read a little bit about her graphic novel, didn't know anything about her, very little about it, and said, what the heck, she can come. As when I got a PDF of the book, I was blown away. Uh, it's the story of Karen Ray's, um, a 10-year-old growing up in Chicago in 1967 who's obsessed with monster movies. Um, uh, and, and not only just monster movies, but monster fanzines. Um, as it turns out, she's also sort of grappling with her sexuality. She realizes she really likes girls. And, she, and because of this... Uh, and her social situation, she is a bit of an outcast. So she is an outcast. She's bullied. She's pushed around. But you know what? That's just fine with her. She likes monsters, and she likes uh, she likes monsters so much she considers herself one. We go from there, and this is just the beginning of the story that Emil Ferris weaves around her and her family uh, to becoming a bit of an a, an amazing murderist murder mystery that takes her uh, that introduces her to the other members of her family and the other uh, her neighbors in this incredible gothic apartment building in Chicago in 1967 right as Martin Luther King is being assassinated i will leave it there um the, uh, the about a week or two ago uh, um, we uh, what? Uh, but two weeks ago, we announced that the book was number five on the BookScan bestseller list. Um, and since that, since that 
interview at Chicago in May 2016, more than 30 outlets have gotten wind and done profiles of Emil Ferris in this new book. It's spread like by word of mouth starting in Chicago. Now there's been profiles in the New Yorker, in uh, the New York Times, in the Guardian, um, you name it, Pace Magazine, you name it, uh, somebody's doing a profile on her. And um, Fantagraphics went back for a second printing uh, of that first printing of uh, My Favorite Thing is Monsters, 30,000 copies, uh, the biggest second printing in its history. And wow. it's this is the story isn't over. The book was supposed to have been published in 2016, wasn't because the print run was trapped on a bankrupt Korean container ship. I, I, I do know we have talked about that. Yeah, so we'll, we'll move on. It's such an amazing times, so. story. But the book finally came ashore. Uh, and people have been snapping it up. Now, there's a second volume of the first, the sequel will be coming out in October from Fantagraphics. And uh, Gary Groth um, told me he's planning on somewhere around a 30,000 copy first printing for the second That's amazing volume. for a comic. So um, it's going to be... Especially, a, so, yeah. especially one thing that we haven't really talked about is that this is a, a paperback. It's a $40 paperback. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not cheap you know, at all. I'm not surprised that they're doing another 30000 because it really is a license to print money. Yes, uh, well, But people are... I mean, it's getting huge acclaim. I, they just had the uh, the uh, Slate Cartoonist Studio Prize was announced, and it's a, it's a nominee for that. Uh, I think it was... I'm not sure if it was... I mean, it's sure to, to strongly... Um, figure in some of the awards as we're I getting think, into award season yes, now. So I think it's going to be so, on a lot of lists for yes, sure. So and then we'll hear Calvin talking about it again. Yes, and Emil is also a wonderfully inspirational figure. And I will direct you to our interview with her instead of gabbing on it yet again. Uh, go to the uh, More to Come archives, and there is a 40-minute interview with Emil first that I did at. Uh, BEA um, in the but summer of 2016. Isn't there more to it than this? Wasn't it? Didn't it have some real challenges in the printing world? We just uh, talked well, about that. Well, case. it was a big book. It, it was a big. It was 700 copies. That's why it was split into two volumes. But um, and it bounced around. The original publisher actually didn't decided that they couldn't do it for a variety of reasons. Not, but all's well that ends well. Uh, um, Emil is a wonderfully sympathetic. Figure besides being enormously talented, this book has some of the most, some one of the richest narratives and some of the most beautiful drawing I've seen in any book. And I'll leave it at that. Okay. All right. So moving on. Yes. To our next topic, which is digital news. So uh, you know, we we've been talking, we've been hinting a little bit about digital maybe picking up a little bit. And uh, what do you know? There's a story about mong digital manga sales are way up. It, what the yeah. heck? Well, it will apparently it's the the entire industry is up, but um, really, I tell you, Japan publishing. Yes, is we're up. talking about the mon the Japanese manga industry in Japan. Uh, this isn't the North American mo uh, model, but apparently, I mean, apparently, if you just look at the categories at, uh, uh, the, of sales in Japanese manga, they dwarf the entire American comics industry. I mean, what 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 are the combined? I mean, just digital. Let me see. I, I mean, there's so many numbers in this story. I, I'm getting a little confused. I think just the digital sales uh, in Japan are about a billion dollars. 
Is that that's what you right. read, Kate? That's, that's what it, well, it says yeah. print manga generated 1.7, 1 billion, yes. um, yeah. which was down, it was actually down a bit, okay? Yes, yeah, but, exactly. Um, however, they figured that the total from books and magazines yes. uh, was 2.6 billion, yes. and uh, digital is up 27%. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, so digital manga has yeah. made $1.28 billion. Which is insane. We say here it's like what, like like ten, ninety million. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's a very small a tiny, number here. So tiny. you know where where Japan goes, the United yeah. States goes. So that's yeah. actually a very uh, interesting story. Yeah, and uh, I think the for... entire Japanese manga publishing uh, was nearly four billion dollars in twenty sixteen, which was a slightly increase over twenty fifteen. Right, but it, but digital is where actually according to this it says that digital is where the biggest growth was. Yes, it so is, without a doubt. It's it up yeah. like about 27%. So right. yes, over right. 27%. Well, I heard, I heard, I heard, mm-hmm. uh, and I was, I'm a very, very interesting source, but who said, this didn't, like, a very good source in the digital world, that, uh, kind of echoing what I've been saying, that, you know, with all of these uh, mobile platform-based comics from Webtoon and, and uh, Capacity yeah. Capas Comics, that we might be seeing, uh, there might be seeing a little activity there here in the United States, especially since they really are aimed at female readers. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of them are. So we might see some growth there. Um, well, that's so. a great place for me to plug uh, the forthcoming PW manga feature, which will be running um, in April uh, and is written by Deb Aoki. There you go. So we can put that on your calendars, folks. And um, as far as other digital stuff, uh, there's a rumor going around because there's a bit of survey out there uh, of to people yeah. who are on Amazon Prime, I guess, asking them if they would want to read DC digital comics. Hmm. I so, haven't. I, so it seems yeah. to be sort of previewing a possible DC Amazon yeah. subscription I service. Called, I think it's called Test. Hmm. Although yeah. I hmm. also heard that this is not quite. It's not like Marvel has Marvel Unlimited, which is their own all-you-can-eat uh, subscription service, which has been running for quite a while, quite successfully. Um, yeah. And I think they hold comics back for about a year, so it's about a year behind the current books, which is how they don't cannibalize the sales. But for $10 a month or less, you get access to hundreds and hundreds of comics. So, you know, everybody's been saying, DC, what are you going to do this? You just yeah. are leaving money on the ground. Uh, so this seems to be some sort of, uh, some sort of, like, toe in the water testing um but it's also definitely included with prime so it's tied up with prime yes um, which which makes it very always very interesting um because i tell you people are tied with prime they're reflexive in using it yes yes Uh, i mean i haven't I haven't seen this survey. I've heard about it from a few people. Um, you know, it's been it was out mm-hmm. there. Uh, so you know, hey, listen, if you have seen this survey and screen capped it like you're supposed to, people, uh, you know, uh, Control Shift Four, okay, Control Shift Four on your Mac. Uh, yeah, let us know. Uh, I'm at ComicsBeat uh, at Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Or hit us up at, at PW Comics. There you go. Ah, and okay. Um, let's see. What's the next on our list? Oh, okay. Did well, we cover we everything? Oh, you know what? We, we did. Oh. There was one other uh, digital thing that I there found very interesting. There was a major thing, actually. Uh, the Marvel marketing um, effort. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting because I've done some stories uh, about geotagging for, um, you know, pros books. So, I mean, Kate, do you want to uh, talk about the Marvel? 
Yeah, item. um there are a couple different things going on with Marvel. Now, we all know that Marvel has mm, had some sales difficulties in the recent past. And what people have been saying ever since the comics movie boom is why don't they advertise the comics more? Why don't they advertise the comics more? Well, Marvel is going to be starting to advertise their comics keyed to the timing of their blockbuster movies, right? So they have not said exactly which things they're advertising or when they're doing it, but they say, quote-unquote, Beginning this weekend, keep your eyes peeled for special pre-trailer advertisements before some of 2017's biggest releases, including ads promoting Marvel's highly anticipated Secret Empire event ahead of select screenings of Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Oh, well, mm. there you go. So well, they you know, are, talk about no-brainer. Yeah, but that that's, that's buddy, no, wait, there's more. Um... Then what they're doing is another part of their like big advertising push is that they are going to have um, a sort of retailer partnership thing using geo-targeted digital advertising to direct customers to comic shops in their area to go buy Marvel Comics there. Mm, yeah. Well, that's it's like a, a modern a modern day version of the comic book locator service. Well, it's it's actually yeah, it's, it's actually linked it. to yeah. the yeah. comic book locator ah, service. Only instead, only instead of making you actually like go like, oh well, I'll click on it, and you have to like actually do the work. It's just gonna like show up and be like, you know, go to Cosmic Comics, your local comic book store, to buy this comic. Yeah, I think there they're going to really key it in. I think they're going to key it into people who are already receiving email. There are privacy issues involved and spam issues involved as well. So it looks like they're going to be tied it to people who are already receiving, you know, I'm sure an avalanche of Marvel email of one kind or another. Um, it's it's actually there's nothing saying that it will only be to email. Yes, it My is. My guess will be actually. Oh, okay, that, I missed actually, that. There is there is stuff saying that it, that it's tied to email because there are privacy issues. You don't want to be getting stuff that you didn't ask for. Yeah. So no, no. Yeah, but what I'm know. saying is that like given the way Facebook ads work, it's people already get geo-targeted ads. That's true, but I don't think it's starting on Facebook, though there's some discussion about taking it to Facebook. My okay. understanding was that it's, they're, they're initially going to use email because they've got millions of people who receive emails. Uh, right. they're, they're, they will no doubt move uh, uh, migrate it to Facebook, but my understanding was Facebook is something is like, you know, aspirational. That's aspirational. Yeah. And, and also when you sign up for Facebook, you allow to yeah, you agree to allow exactly. them to just take your privacy and throw it in the gutter anyway. So, yeah. you know. So like I said, I may be wrong. My understanding is they're starting with email and then they might be moving to uh, other areas of social media. But the geotargeting is very interesting because they use your IP addresses whatever to to find the stores and let you know about them automatically. And in the book publishing world, They've used geotargeting to go a little bit further. They can, you know, they they can use they can target a whole area, say a museum. And when you go in there, if a publisher has a book that is uh, affects, like say a museum, like the Air and Space Museum, and you go there, and David McCullough's book on the you know the the Wright brothers, they may offer it 
offer you uh, a sample of it and you can buy it online directly from there but you could also read it you know get a free read uh, for a limited amount of time but this is a little different but that's the same basis right right and you know i think we're all i mean it's fascinating stuff that we're burying the lead a little bit here is that Marvel knows they have to do something to boost their sales. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, no, as Kate mentioned, to, yeah, as Kate mentioned, no, without a doubt, turning to modern and without a doubt, technological. You know, they are owned by Disney after all, and you can bet your bottom dollar that Disney knows how to do all of this stuff. Yeah, no, yeah, without a doubt. I almost wonder if Disney had been more hands off before because while they were watching how Marvel's business model worked, and now that there's a dip. The, the Disney marketing people are going in and like being like, "Hey, we got some ideas, guys, about how to market your stuff." Well, you because know, I, things hadn't changed for a while. You well, know, like, I also was talking to a friend, as I do, and uh, <laughs> like apparently, I mean, we've talked many, many times about Isaac Perlmutter, uh, who is a very penny pinching. Uh, you know, he's Marvel's president. And he's a big penny pincher, but you know, he's really spread his wings all over Disney. So they're they're his his brand of frugality has spread quite a bit. And uh, you know, there've been layoffs over the last few years. A lot of people think are due to his influence. And even though he's very busy running around with Donald Trump uh, trying to help our <laughs> veterans, I mean, I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, he's actually quite busy doing that and spending time with uh, our the president. And uh, but uh, apparently, may, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's too busy. Maybe they they got this budget by without Ike. But but I think it's 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 you know I think uh, you know this is deep criminology, pure speculation on my part. But I think. Uh, even with the schism between Marvel Studios uh, and uh, Marvel Publishing, which is, you know, basically Kevin Feige, who runs Marvel Studios, said, I don't want Ike telling me what to do anymore. And they were like, well, you made a billion dollars last year. So you know what? That's fine. Uh, so even with the schism, I think they're saying, you know what? Let's make sure that we sell more comics, because that would be really embarrassing if we couldn't sell any comics. Yeah. And, you know, maybe even if Perlmutter signed off on it, like, it took actually losing money to make him go, okay, fine, spend money on ads. Right, right, right. Well, it's all speculation. But anyway, all Marvel's doing some very, very yeah. uh, forward-looking stuff. And uh, hopefully we'll be learning. I, I understand they're doing a tour, a retailer tour right now, where they're going to speaking to retailers nationwide. So hopefully we'll hear a few little leaks. Although I hear everybody has to sign a pretty st stringent NDA as well. Mm -hmm. But we'll, we'll be learning more. All right. So, all right. So, you know, let's move on here because right. we've been uh, definitely we're, we're not all in the same place and we can't give each other little cues where we say it's uh, I <laughs> saying, so, yes. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about con stuff right now. Uh, so okay. a couple developments, the con world, uh, New York Comic Con announced this week that they would no longer be selling three and four day passes. You can only buy individual tickets. Now, this is partly because there's going to be construction yet again at the Javits Center. Is this place ever going to be done? I oh, guess yeah. not. Is this so tearing down? the um the uh artist yes. alley area yes yeah because it's going to expand long, yeah long long beloved yeah. north hall yes you remember but um uh basically they're not going to be able to accommodate as many people and so selling single day tickets means that more people will have access to tickets and uh you know san diego did this a few years ago when the world didn't end so mm -hmm. i yeah. think it really is some people are like you know what i can't go uh, Saturday, so I'm just going to go Thursday and Friday. You know, I mean, you can still buy tickets for all four days if you're, you know, fast on the trigger. Hmm. It's just you can be more selective about which days you get now. So yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's an end of the world at all. And um, also, I think well, they were saying that they wanted to, you know, 
do what San Diego was doing and, um, you know, get in more different individual people. Right. Which I could see would be a boon both for fans because, you know, people want to get in and they can't get a ticket. Um, But also a boon for vendors because, like, maybe you buy a few more things if you're there for four days and not one. But if you've got, like, four different people coming in on that slot on the floor, like, each one of them is going to buy stuff. And it might lead to better sales for vendors. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So so I, there was a lot of moaning about this. But I, I don't think in the end it's really going to have too much difference. I mean, the biggest problem with this year's New York Comic Con, from what I'm hearing, is that they don't know where they're going to put Artist Alley. It's definitely going to be on the lower level. And that just blows. It both sucks and blows at the same time because the lower level of Javits Center is awful and sad and depressing. It's like yep. watching Logan when you're in a bad mood. And so, especially since the the art the traditional artist alley was a beautiful plate full of natural light. Well, that wasn't the original. That was just the one. Because well, the the had, most recent uh, the area. The most recent, yes. The most recent evolved. area where it has been held. Yeah. Yes, in the most. Um, yeah, recent. But anyway, you know, it'll all happen. And you know what? It'll be packed. Be it'll be fine, yeah. People there. Everybody will complain, and we'll still have a good time. <laughs> yes, and it'll, everybody so, will have a good time. Yes, yes. So, uh, but speaking of New York Comic Cons, I, I also went to, uh, just briefly, just went to the, the Big Apple Con, which is the other con here in uh, in New York, and uh, which is a very different kind of a show. I mean, I've been to this... Uh, you know, it's they've been holding it for years, yep. for twenty years, uh, over at the Penn Plaza, which is a crumbling, low ceiling, <laughs> strange place. With it's terrible it's a weird metaphor, I think, for <laughs> it, it is the it con is. itself. But, but you know, it was it was it's the, it's the essential con, and yes. uh, Stan Lee was supposed to be there, and he had to bow out due to uh, illness. And I was talking to somebody, um, and Stan has also pulled out of Salt Lake City last weekend, so, you know, he's recuperating, and Stan is 94, and I was talking to somebody who works for Big Apple, well, allied, someone in the Big Apple orbit, and he said, you know, every con showrunner is terrified that they'll be the show that kills Stan Lee. (laughs) Well, I can imagine. How old is Stan now? He's 94 years old. Okay, all right. Well, I've been I've I've only been to the Big Apple Con once. It was years ago. Um, uh, it, you know, it was fine. It was a, you know, it's uh it's it it's an interesting historical <laughs> kind of con that um the you know the the kind of the category has moved on into another uh, way of uh, presenting comics. Um, but the, the piece that you had on the beat, I just thought was uh, particularly uh, enjoyable to read, and kind of reminded me and my about why we love comics in the first place. Um, yeah, well, I, I had this kind of the same experience because because it is a real throwback con. I mean, it's it's really basic, you know. I mean, there's there. I mean, Barbara Eden was there. Uh, John Bernthal, plays the Punisher, was there. Uh, Jim Lee was there for a little bit. Frank Miller was there. Neil Adams was there. So there were some huge guests. Um, but, uh, but it's also just, it's, it's not a great space, but there was a lot, there was a lot of cosplayers and I, I happened to see the cosplay contest and it was really touching. You know, yeah. the winner was a guy in a wheelchair who was yeah. playing Ezekiel from the walking dead. And there was uh, just people of all colors, of all ages, mm-hmm. of all shapes and all sizes. Some of the costumes really 
were very homemade, and you mm-hmm. can tell that. But it was so touching and so enthusiastic. You know, we talked a little bit about Elite Con, which is, as is their right, they are a collector's show only, so they mm-hmm. only want people to come and buy expensive crap. And so they said no cosplay. And you know what? That's fine. But cosplay adds so much to shows. Absolutely. No, it can be a pain in the ass every once in a while, but it, but it, the pluses are it adds so much, not only to... Uh, us walking around and seeing it, but really to the people who do it. Yeah, and it, it just made me. I, I, I'm going to try and go to Big Apple Con again because I just haven't been in years. Um, but really, uh, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed that piece. Let's let's take a quick look. Uh, we've got some great stuff um, uh, in the magazine and on pw uh, pw.com this week. Uh, in particular, Heidi's author profile of Jeff Lemire, who's got a couple of books. Uh, coming out. Um, it's got like four books coming yeah, out. I mean, yeah. this guy never, he is a workaholic, uh, but but uh, they're all really excellent. I mean, you know, Roughneck is coming out, which is the debut graphic novel from the Galaxy 13 line. Uh, Black Hammer from yeah. Dark Horse, which I adore. Oh, my God. Yeah, I started book. reading that, and I'm, I, I, I love that, too. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad, because it is uh, top-notch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, then AD, which Jeff Drew mm-hmm. and Scott Snyder wrote, which is also really top-notch. And uh, then uh, he just has a new book from Image. So anyway, yes, I talked to Jeff. He is de- a delight. I love that guy. He is uh, He's such a good cartoonist, you know, and such a good storyteller. And just very quickly, I'd just like to mention, we ha- actually, PW has a new West Coast stringer. Uh, some of you may know him, Jason Boog, who used to be uh, right for Galley Cats and Media Bistro here in New York. Well, he lives in L.A. right now, and he, uh, in fact, his inaugural piece uh, as a P.W. Stringer, uh, he wrote about a Women in Comics panel at the L.A. Public Library um, that had a great lineup of, uh, of women comics uh, creators, uh, including um, uh, Cecil Castel- uh, Castellucci, uh, Sarah Kuhn, um, Christina Strain, Talia Perper, Talking about, uh, and uh, yes, uh, indeed, it was a, a Women in Comics panel, but I think what it did was try to illuminate some of the things that we've been talking about on this podcast for many years, the rising uh, number uh, of, of female fans and female pro- professionals, uh, how things have improved uh, as much as, you know, to complain about it, where the thing is going, and also some, uh, I thought they had some really useful comments about the book format the graphic novel format and how it's in fact that that format is helping uh to shape diversity so um go to publisherswiki.com slash comics okay so in the past on this podcast uh right after the recent presidential election um we mentioned a i suppose you might call it promo for a possible future manga about um, poor, put-upon Baron Trump as the grumpy manga kid. Well, someone, not just someone, Brooklyn-based artist Joy Ling, um, has published the first chapter of The Adventures of Baron and His Loudmouth President Father, which has... Uh, Baron Trump as a 10-year-old who really just wants to play Pokemon and watch Netflix um, and ends up investigating a mystery with Sasha and Malia Obama. Uh, It's an independent 
a comic. You can buy it online. Um, just Google Joy Ling and the Adventures of Baron. It will show up. And well, uh, I have to admit, I have to admit, I went out and immediately bought this thing. I hope we haven't crossed the line here <clears throat> since uh, uh, it's uh, it, where we're uh, lampooning presidential children, uh, particularly uh, well, a very small kid. However, well, I, I have a sympathetic portrayal. It's it's using a presidential child as a sympathetic mouthpiece to lampoon the actual president. Yeah, so I that feel like it hasn't the quite case. crossed the line. <clears throat> well, it probably does, but well, uh, you know what? I bought it anyway, and um, <laughs> the fact that he teamed up with Malia and Sasha, I couldn't resist it. So we'll have to see. I haven't got it yet. We'll have to see what it's like. Uh, I, I did like the drawings, and um, uh, I don't know what... I mean, obviously you can make fun of the president. Uh, I think, generally speaking, people stay away from presidential kids, um, but he is so. he does essentially become an adventure hero. Yeah. <laughs> so we I can't wait to see it. So there you go. There you go. Um, and so many people who love comics uh, may venture into visiting San Diego at some time other than Comic-Con and, and wish there was a little Comic-Con to enjoy there. Uh, well, starting in 2018. Very soon, yeah, I think it's in um, 2018. Yeah, um, the um, place that is currently the San Diego Hall of Champions, uh, the San Diego Sports Museum, will be, the San Diego Sports Museum will, will move to Petco Park, and instead of the Hall of Champions, they will have a interactive museum devoted to San Diego Comic-Con and Comic-Con and popular culture. It's, it's known as the, the uh, Comic-Con Center for Popular Culture and will host a program of rotating exhibitions on comics and movies all there year round. It's Comic-Con 365 days a year. Yeah, if you cannot get Frightening enough Frightening as that sounds. <laughs> if you cannot get enough Comic-Con yeah. during Comic-Con, there will be Comic-Con for you without the Comic-Con. There you go. And I've said Comic-Con so many times now that it doesn't sound like a word. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm sorry. (laughs) There you go. Sorry, guys. We managed to cram a lot into this episode. So um, I'm just trying to figure out if I've left anything out. No, I think we've touched upon everything. Yes. So That doesn't mean there won't be more to come.